Well, good morning. Peace be with you. We're in a series looking at what are known as the five solas, which are really five declarations that came out of and actually sum up the very essence of the movement 500 years ago known as the Protestant Reformation. These truths, they weren't something new that the reformers came up with. They were old truths that had been mishandled and misplaced for hundreds and hundreds of years that they recovered from God's word. And two weeks ago, we looked at this idea of grace alone. Last week, we looked at the the idea of faith alone. And today we come to the claim of Christ alone. And the heart of this claim is that salvation, peace with God, life with God, comes only through Jesus Christ and only through him alone. Now, this claim was controversial in that day because while everyone would agree, yes, salvation comes through Jesus, it was really a Jesus plus kind of theology. So salvation comes through Jesus plus the mass, Jesus plus your own merit and good works, Jesus plus absolution from the Pope. That was the the essence of the controversy back then. And while there's some of that still in this day for sure, and we've talked about that the last couple of weeks, this claim, it's controversial in a different way in our day. The, The controversy has shifted. The claim that salvation and eternal life comes only through Jesus Christ is not a popular claim in our day. It's exclusive. And it it feels, it just kind of irritates people in our day. You're saying of all the people on the earth and all of the religions on the earth and everyone's different story and every different region, there's only one way to God. And the answer is yes. And God's word is very clear on this. First Timothy two, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And then Jesus himself in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The teaching's clear that there is one way to God, and that's Jesus Christ but it's not popular and it's a hard truth for a lot of people. And I think part of what makes it hard is there are a lot of Christians who hold this position kind of with an air of superiority or or arrogance, you know, that I've got the right answer and you've got the wrong answer and so you have to be more like me. And while this is the right answer, I think if you understand this, it humbles you greatly. And so what I wanna do today as we consider this idea of Christ alone is help help put the pieces together for you so you can understand why, why there's only one mediator, why salvation is found in no one else, why Jesus is the only way. And we could spend months talking about this, but at the very heart of the answer to that question is the teaching held forth for us here in Romans 3 that Mo just read for us. And many, many theologians would argue that this is the most important paragraph in the Bible. And I'll tell you, I've spent three weeks in it and I feel like I'm just scratching the surface and I can't believe I'm gonna to try to preach as much as I am today. But you come to it and it's how do, you, how do you navigate such a thick and dense and rich text? And what I wanna do is just look at three words in the text. Two words that are here and another word that's here in a different translation. The word redemption, the word propitiation, and then the word demonstration. That's all we're gonna do. Redemption, propitiation, demonstration. Paul says 
In verse 22 to 24, there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. At the heart of Christianity, at the heart of why Jesus came to earth, if you want to understand what the Bible is about, you have to understand this idea of redemption. Now, redemption is a word that we use a lot in the church. We talk about redeem, redemption, but we don't often define it. And there's actually a very particular definition for this word. Redemption, at the most basic level, it means to be bought out of slavery. There's two components. There's slavery, and then there's being bought out. Someone paying a price, a ransom, to buy you out of, the, out of that slavery. And actually, in the original language, the word ransom is embedded in the word redemption. So they're very, very closely knit with one another. And the claim that Paul's making here is that Jesus Christ came to make a payment and to offer a ransom in order to set us free from our slavery. This claim is backed up by the words of Jesus in Mark 10, where Jesus says, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so we're going to look at what the price he paid was in point two. But point one, we need to talk about the nature of the slavery that we find ourselves in as human beings on this earth. And what Paul says, he says, we have all sinned. And it doesn't matter if you're religious, if you're irreligious. It doesn't matter if you're a devout person or a profane person. It doesn't matter what your background is. If you grew up in the church, you didn't. What Paul's saying very clearly, all, that word's very clear, have sinned that we're all sinners. And Paul will go on to say that anyone who sins is a slave to sin. That's what he, he argues in Romans 6. And he didn't come up with that idea on his own that came from Jesus in John 8, where Jesus says, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And so what Paul is saying here, contrary to what mo many modern people think, that sin, it's not just breaking a moral code or breaking God's law. Sin is actually a condition that we find ourselves in. That all of us were, were slaves to sin. And the implications of this are very, very massive. There's a lot of talk, you know, especially you come around church or you get into philosophy. Do human beings have free will? And it's, it's kind of a complicated question and it's kind of not because the short answer is no. We don't have free will because we cannot not sin. You do not have the ability to not sin. You, as much as you might try, as much as you might say, you know what, I am never going to sin again for the rest of my life. You won't make it to lunch <laughs> until you sin again. Why? Because we're slaves to sin. We've got ourselves in a mess we cannot get ourselves out of with it. We're slaves. Even more than that, we're not just slaves to sin. And this, I'm going to tell you, this is a hard truth, but it's a necessary truth. We're not just slaves to sin. We're also, we're also held captive. A human race is held captive right now under God's judgment. Right after Paul says all have sinned and fall short of the glory, or right after he says we've all sinned, he says that we all fall short of the glory of God. And this is a very famous verse. You've probably heard it before. 
But what does that really mean? What does it mean that we fall short of the glory of God? Well, typically we think that means that we don't measure up. And while I think that's part of the answer, the word for that's translated fall short is, fall short is actually the word lack. And if you were to literally translate what Paul says here, he says, we all lack the glory of God. And if, if you're tracking with me, what Paul is getting at, he's saying not only do we fail to live up to God's moral standard, we also lack something that God possesses, which is his glory. And throughout the book of Romans, God's glory is often linked with immortality, eternal life, and fellowship with God, relationship with God, intimacy, you could say, with God. And I think what Paul's getting at in here, here in chapter three is that at the fall, not, not only did Adam and Eve break God's law and fall into slavery to sin, their relationship with God was also broken. And the glory that they had at creation, the intimacy, the relationship, the knowing God, that was lost as well. And we see this in Genesis 3, that after they ate the forbidden fruit, what does God do? He curses. He offers some curses. The curse is the opposite of a blessing. He curses the ground. He says, Adam, it's only going to be through painful toil and sweat that you're going to eat, you know, from the fruit of your labor. Not only that, he forbids Adam and Eve from eating from the tree of life so that they can't live forever, condemning them and all of their descendants, which includes us, to die, which was another judgment of God. And then lastly, the last thing he did is he banished them from the garden. And he put an angel with a sword that said, you can never come back in to this garden. He cut them off from God's presence, from his presence. God, because of sin, he cursed the world and he judged the world. And to our modern and sensitive ears, this sounds harsh because we like to think of the God who blesses. We don't like to think or talk so much about a God who curses. But the truth is really plain in Scripture. John Stott puts it like this. He says, no man can sin with impunity for God is not a sentimental old father Christmas, but the righteous judge of men. Disobedience always brings us under the curse of God and exposes us to the awful penalties of his judgment. And so the hard truth is that the entire world right now lives under the curse of God's judgment. That the world, it's not, it's not under the blessing of God saying it is good, it is good. It's, it's under the curse of God. And this is hard, but, but if you understand it, it makes a whole lot of sense, helps you make a whole lot of sense of the world that we live in. I mean, this world we live in, it is brimming with so much beauty and so much potential. And yet it consistently lets us down. It consistently disappoints us and devastates us and crushes us. This is why everything is harder than it should be. Everything takes longer than it should be. Everything costs more than it should. Everything is difficult and everything is deteriorating and everything is decaying and everything is dying. We can't turn on the news without wincing. As we look at this world, and it's hard for us because there is, it's just, there's so much beauty, but there's also so much brokenness. And every four years, a different politician comes around who promises they're gonna solve our problems and every four years they let us down. 
because the problem is too deep. The problem is not just, you know, a lack of leadership. The problem is that we live under the curse and the judgment of God. To make matters worse, there's nothing we can do about it. We can't work our way out of his judgment. Paul writes in Galatians 3.10, he says, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. So what Paul is saying here is if you think you're gonna work your way out from under God's judgment, then you have to obey everything he ever said and no one's ever gonna do that. And actually when you do that, the law, you can go to Deuteronomy 28 and it is a, it is an arresting passage, I'll put it like that, where God says, if you obey, here are the blessings. If you disobey, here are the curses that are gonna come upon you. And Paul says, none of us obey and those curses, that judgment falls on us. And this is weighty and this is hard, but it's essential if you're gonna understand what Christianity is about. That we're slaves to sin and we all, by ourselves, we stand under God's judgment. But right after Paul says, all who rely on works of the law are cursed, he says this, but Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And so what, what Paul is saying here, the liberation we've received, it's not just liberation from the penalty of sin and, and in some sense the power of sin. It's also liberation from, from being held captive by the curse of the law, the curse of God's judgment. And so the question becomes, okay, how did Jesus set us free from the slavery? How did he redeem us, buy us out of it? What was the price he paid? And that leads us to the second word, this word propitiation. Paul tells us in verse 25 that God put forward his son, Jesus Christ, as a propitiation for our sins by his blood. He says something similar in Ephesians 1, in him we have redemption through his blood. And you'll notice when you read the Bible, there's a lot of talk, not just about Jesus, but in particular about his blood, his sacrifice. And to understand why there's such an emphasis on this. Because if you're not raised in the church and you come and you hear songs, people singing about Jesus' blood. My mom wasn't raised in the church. And when she's not a believer, when I bring her to church, she's always confused and a bit alarmed. She's like, why do you guys talk about blood so much? It's kind of gross. <laughs> I said, it is. And that's kind of the point. And to understand why there's this talk about blood, to understand the price Jesus paid, which was his blood, you have to understand this word, propitiation. And it's, it's a big word, and it's not a word we use very often in modern English, and I wish there was an equivalent of a word that, that you guys understand, but there's not. And so we gotta stick with it. Propitiation, at its essence, means to satisfy someone's anger. It means to turn aside, to appease someone's wrath. It's a relational word. And what Paul is saying here in Romans 3, very clearly, is that God's anger was pointed at us. His wrath was trained on us, so to speak. And then Jesus Christ came, and through the shedding of his blood, he propitiated, he appeased the wrath and anger of God. 
and we're redeemed. We've been bought out of the slavery of sin and God's judgment because God's wrath was satisfied through Christ's blood that was shed on the cross. That's the essence of the teaching. And I'll tell you, this teaching, just like the first one, it's not, not incredibly popular in our day. This is a teaching that even many in the church recoil at. You know, the song in Christ Alone has a line, Till on that cross when Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. There are a whole lot of people that change that lyric because they don't like that lyric because we don't like to talk about a God of wrath and we don't want to think of a God who, who is appeased through the blood of his son because to us it seems primitive. Like this God who's only appeased by the death of his son, he's a wrathful, bloodthirsty God who wants to worship a God like that. This is offensive. This is, some people say, divine child abuse. People recoil at this teaching. People hate it. And so what do we say to that? <laughs> All I can say is, this is one of the most precious doctrines in my life. And it's one of the most precious doctrines in Scripture. And while it's hard, it's also incredibly good when you understand it. And it's beautiful and it's powerful. I think this truth will become precious to you if you understand it. And to understand it, to understand why this, this matters and why Jesus appeases God's wrath, you have to understand kind of three things. Three points within the point. Number one, you have to understand the relationship between love and anger. It's not uncommon in our day to hear people say things like, I don't believe in a God of anger. I believe in a God of love. You know, Oprah, this was her big, big reason she left the church. I can't believe in a God who gets jealous or wrathful. I don't want to believe in an angry God. I want to believe in a God of love. And when people say that, whether they realize it or not, what they're saying is, I want to believe in a two-dimensional God. I want to believe in a mythical God. I want my God to be a blurred glow of sentiment that sends warm feelings and good energy to me, but doesn't actually have contours, isn't actually personal. And the reason I will say that is because all of us know by experience that love and anger, they're not opposites, but actually anger, it's the result of love. Anger is the fruit of love. It's not, you can't put those on, on opposite sides of the pole. Well, they're loving and they're angry. You know, the entire reason you get angry is because you love. When you love someone or something and something else threatens that, anger will result. If you love someone and they have an addiction to alcohol or to drugs and you're walking with them and you're trying to help them and they relapse or they they give you the stiff arm. You get angry. Why do you get angry? If you didn't care about them, you wouldn't get angry. You get angry because you love them and you hate what's destroying them. And if God, he really loves the world he made, if God really loves, not just this sentimental, like God's love, God really loves particular people and particular places. If he really loves not just in the abstract, he will get angry at sin and at all the things that are threatening that which he loves. You know, 
uh, Rebecca Pippert, she says this. She says, anger is not the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. The opposite of love isn't anger, it's hate. And the final form of hatred is indifference. You don't give a rip. The final form of hatred is do whatever you want. I could care less. Someone else said that if God were not angry at injustice and deception, he would not be worthy of our worship. And to say I can't believe in a God of anger, what you're saying is I can't believe in a God of love. And I'll actually say I've seen a shift in our culture, I think, in the last couple of years. I mean, you, you go through enough mass shootings, um, injustices, that are caught on video. I mean, they've always been happening, but now we see them really clearly because people pulled out their phone and videotaped them. You go through enough of that and eventually you're like, something needs to happen here. You get angry. And so God's, God's love and his anger, they're not opposites. His anger flows from his love. Number two, the second thing you have to understand is the nature of God's anger. And this is really important because a big reason people struggle with the idea of an angry or wrathful God is we fear that his anger is like our anger. You know, our anger is irrational often. It's often uncontrollable and unpredictable. It's often self-serving, spiteful, malicious. But God is not like us. God, he's not volatile and he's not short-tempered. He's very slow to anger. The scriptures make, it, make that clear. And his anger, it's not irrational or unpredictable. In fact, God's anger is entirely and completely predictable. You know when God is going to get angry. What does God get angry with? He gets angry with sin. That's the thing he gets angry with, sin and evil. All of the things that are like a cancer destroying his creation, he gets angry with them. But he doesn't fly off the handle. God's anger, he's a judge. And his anger is as settled and steady opposition to evil, sin, and justice, and all their forms. It's, it's the wrath, the anger of a judge administering justice. And so when we see all the things happening, and you know, social media, social media reveals that it's a good thing that we actually have a government, you know, and a legal system, because... <laughs> Because the masses, you know, they want to be judge, jury, and executioner. And, and it reveals, like, we wouldn't be very good at being judge. We might want to be judge, but we're not very good at it. We're too emotional. Our emotions are too tied in. God, though, he's the perfect judge. We can't deal with the evil in the world, but he can. And I would say, if you want to see all the wrongs in the world put to right, you have to believe that God is a judge. Because we're not putting them right. But he will, and he'll do so with a steady, resolved, settled, righteous anger. So to understand, you got to know love and anger, the nature of God's anger. It's not like ours. And number three, you have to understand the satisfaction of God's anger. How is God's anger satisfied? How is his wrath appeased? How can God, who looks at this world, and you think we are offended and disgusted by the things we see, imagine what he sees, because he sees all. He, does, he doesn't just see what happens on the nightly news. 
Like he sees what happens in our hearts and in the conversations we have in our own homes and with our kids and with our spouses. He sees it all. And so how in the world can God, who loves the creation but is watching it absolutely be destroyed by our sin, how can that anger be turned aside? How can it be propitiated? And what Paul says here, this is the greatest news in the world, is that God did what we could not do for ourselves. That God didn't say, you need to appease my wrath. We can't do it. You need to turn aside my anger. Instead, God the Father sent forth Jesus, God the Son, who was at the same time fully God and fully man, to be the propitiation for our sins, to be our substitute, to take our place. Martin Luther put it like this, God sent his son into the world, heaped all of the sins of men upon him and said to him, be Peter the denier and Paul the persecutor, blasphemer and assaulter, David the adulterer, the sinner who ate the apple in paradise, the thief in the cross. In short, be the person of all men, the one who has committed the sins of all men. Jesus, you're going to take the sin. Even more, you're going to take the wrath that sinners deserve. Now, where people get tripped up as they say, well, I guess God the Father is really angry, but Jesus is really gracious. And because Jesus is gracious, he can appease the anger. It's more complicated than that. If you look at verse 25, it doesn't say Jesus put forward his blood. It says God put forward. But God took the initiative. And here we get into the wonderful yet mysterious and perplexing doctrine of the Trinity that our God is one God and three persons. And it's hard for us to wrap our minds around, but it's incredibly helpful here. Because it's not, God's not three persons, he's one God in three persons. And so when God comes to, God wants to appease his wrath, he himself comes in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, he didn't demand our blood, the blood of a goat, a cow, or a child. God shed his own blood. God took the initiative to appease his own righteous anger by bearing the weight of it upon himself. It was God's doing. And this is really important because you have to understand that Christ's death, it wasn't the beginning or the start or the inauguration of God's grace. It was the result of God's grace. It was God's plan. John Stott put it like this. It cannot be emphasized too strongly that God's love is the source, not the consequence of the atonement. So God's not steaming mad in heaven, just burning with anger, sitting there like, sooner or later, I'm gonna, I'm gonna wipe them all out. And then Jesus is like, hey, I have an idea. God's like, I don't like it because I don't like anything, you know, because that's how we think of that God. And Jesus comes, that's, that's not what happens. It's God's plan. And God comes, and he takes the sin. Relationship between love and anger, the nature of God's anger, satisfaction of God's anger. God satisfies his own anger in his son. 
And I want to say the, this idea of propitiation, of appeasing the anger of a god or gods, it's not unique to Christianity. You can read about it in Greek mythology that if you need fair, win, fair winds, you'll sacrifice one of your kids to get there. What's unique to Christianity is that in every other religion, you do the work of, of satisfying the anger. In every other religion and myth and story, it's your job to propitiate God's wrath. Through your money, your blood, your sweat, your good works. In Christianity, though, it's God himself who makes the sacrifice in Jesus Christ. Fully God, fully man. So here we're getting to why. Nothing else is going to appease God's wrath except for the perfect sacrifice of his son. And it's only by faith in that son that we can be saved. Redemption, propitiation, last one, demonstration. Paul tells us in verses 25 and 26 that the cross, it shows us, that is, it demonstrates for us the righteousness of God. And what Paul is saying here is that the, the cross doesn't just secure something for us, our salvation. It also reveals something essential about the nature of God. And to understand why Paul is saying this, you know, the question that we ask is how could a loving God send people to hell? But the more accurate question and the question that Paul's trying to answer here is how could a just and righteous God let wicked people go free? How could a just and righteous judge of the earth turn, turn a blind eye to wickedness? <laughs> I mean, we hate judges that do that, don't we? Someone commits a violent crime and they go before the judge and the judge is like, you know, it's just not that big of a deal. Not only are you free, come to the party at my house. We would, we would unseat them We'd want to prosecute them. And so the question is, how can, <laughs> how can a, a good God, the judge, let wicked people off the hook? And this is what Paul's answering when he says, that through the cross, that God, in doing this, it, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The cross, it didn't just secure something for us. It revealed something about God that we need to understand if we're going to worship him and follow him rightly. Namely, that God is both just and the justifier. God is just. God is a judge. He cares about evil, injustice, and sin. He sets standards. He holds us accountable for our actions. He holds us accountable for the ways in which we hurt one another. He's a judge. He's just. But at the same time, he's also the justifier. He's loving and he's gracious. And he doesn't leave us in the helpless state we put ourselves in. The mess we got ourselves into that we can't get ourselves out of, he gets us out of it. He's both the just and the justifier. And it's, it seems paradoxical and it would be paradoxical if it were not for the cross. But the wonder of the cross is that it demonstrates at the exact same time the justice of God and the love of God. And I read earlier this week, do you want to see the wrath of God? Look to the cross. 
Do you want to see the love of God? Look to the cross. That's where they meet. And if you, I'm speaking in particular to believers, although this applies to everyone, if you don't see both that God is just and the justifier, that he's filled with both holy wrath towards sin and sacrificial love of sinners, you'll end up with a distorted view of God and a distorted relationship with him. If you have a God who is the justifier, you know, but he's not just, you have a God devoid of standards and devoid of holiness. Really, you have a God who is indifferent to sin. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to worship a God who's indifferent to sin and injustice. If you only see him as justifier and not just, especially, gosh, if you were, you see people plagued by oppression and you say, you know, it just doesn't matter. God doesn't care all that much. In the end, he's just going to love everyone. That's not very hopeful. It's not true. If God is the justifier, but not just, you miss out on his holiness. Likewise, if you have a God who is just, but he's not the justifier, you end up with a God of holy wrath and justice, but completely devoid of grace. And I think in a lot of American churches like 20, 30 years ago, it's kind of shifted maybe to now it's more God the justifier, not the just. At least in evangelical churches, though, for many years, the image of God that was held forward was more the God who is just, not the God who is the justifier. And the thing is, when you hold forth the idea that God is filled with holy wrath and justice and you kind of leave out, but he's also abounding in grace, you can really inspire people to live a moral life. And I think when you look at, at the church that kind of was eaten from the inside out is because they had this sense that God is just, but they missed the justifier. And so they, they were people who were very driven. They worked really, really hard, but their drivenness, their morality, it was fueled by fear. And I will say fear can fuel obedience and compliance, but fear will not and it cannot produce love. Fear cannot produce love. If you're terrified, you might do some things, right? You'll change your behavior. But fear is not going to stir your affections. And this is why there are so many religious people in our country who have a very, they're, they're very, very moral in a sense, but they lack the fruit of the Spirit. They lack things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. I mean, they don't, they don't commit adultery. They don't commit murder. You know, they don't do any of those really scandalous sins. And so th they've got the just part, like I live a pretty clean life, but they don't have a heart that is exploding with the love of God that overflows into kindness and compassion and warmth. They see God as just, but not the justifier. But when you're able to hold both of these truths together, that God is absolutely just, but he's also the justifier. And you realize that the cross is not a compromise where God's like, well, I'll compromise on my wrath, you know, and I'll compromise a little on grace. But no, it's the fullest demonstration of God's wrath and his love. That's what causes you to sing. And that's why we sing here. And that's why we sing about the cross.
because it changes everything. It deals a death blow to your fears. And so we've talked a lot in the last three weeks. Does God get angry with us? And I keep saying no. And you say, well, how can I know? Because he put all of the anger on Jesus. And he doesn't have anything left for you. Jesus took all of the wrath. He took the frown. And now by faith, we get nothing but the smile. We deserve the frown still, but we get nothing but the smile because of Jesus. And again, you're like, that sounds too easy. It sounds too good to be true. I know. That's why it's called the gospel, the good news. And when this grabs hold of your heart, it does two things. I want to leave you with this. It fuels your holiness and it also fuels your hope. When you really understand this, it fuels your holiness. You understand what Paul's getting at when he says, you are not your own, you were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. And he's writing to people who were like, they were neck deep in sexual sin. And he goes to them and he doesn't say, stop, stop sinning sexually. Stop sleeping around or looking at pornography. What he says is, your body doesn't even belong to you. Like Jesus bought it. He redeemed it. He paid the price, the ransom with his blood to set you free from your slavery to sin and judgment. So why would you go back to it? It doesn't make sense. Like he paid the price. Now you belong to him. But it's not, I have to do this or else. No, it's, I belong to him. I'm his. And that's where real holiness begins to to gain traction in your life. He gave everything for me, and so now I pour my life out and sacrifice to him. You don't take sin lightly because you saw it took Jesus' blood to pay for it. You also recognize you have the Spirit, which, you know, this is a whole other sermon, but I'll just say this. When God gives you a spirit, he enables you to live the life you were created to live but weren't able to live because of the fall. There is a potential for believers to live a life that we could have never lived, a life of beauty and strength and passion and holiness that we could have never done were not through the cross. And yet how often do we exchange that and say, no, I want to go back to this even though it's miserable and it makes me miserable and everyone else miserable. When you understand he's just and the justifier, it fuels your holiness, but it also fuels your hope. Because when we see deep injustices in the world, we know that our God takes sin seriously. And it's belief that God brings judgment. We see how serious he takes it in the cross. And when we believe he takes judgment so seriously, that enables us to trust him. He's going to get it right enables us to not be filled with bitterness or anger or, or to be despondent when you're overwhelmed. Anyone else ever overwhelmed by just the bad news and the evil in the world? God will get it right. He's proved it on the cross and he's promised he's coming again. He'll either change people's hearts or he'll bring final judgment. And that's where we really get to the heart of Christianity. You're either saved by the blood of Jesus or you're not. Either he took God's wrath or God's wrath is directed at you. And what we do in communion is we who are believers, we celebrate that Jesus' body was broken and we break the bread 
and that his blood was shed for us. And so this is God giving us this weekly reminder. Hey, you're going to forget this because you're going to sin all week long and you're going to be very, very discouraged and you're going to think that God hates you and his wrath's on you. If you're in Christ, you need this to remember. No, his body was broken and his blood was shed. You have peace with God. I think this is also a witness. It's a warning. If you're not in Christ... And the warning is this, if, if you're not saved by the blood of Jesus, God is going to demand your life, your blood, as a payment for your sins. And that's why we get, you know, Christians, we get, you know, almost annoying about Jesus is the only way. Because even when you give your life in judgment, it's not going to make you right with God. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, I plead with you, receive the gift Jesus secured for you. Put your faith and your hope and your trust in him. If you're here and you are a Christian, I encourage you to come forward and to celebrate what Christ has done and to recognize this causes us to burst forth in song and that we can sing proclaiming love for God who first loved us. Let me pray.